Hello, and welcome to From the Center, the podcast of the Center for Western Studies. I'm John Hodges, the director of the Center, and we are proud to be getting our podcast back up and running. Those of you who follow us know that we usually quit in the summers, but this past year, 2020, was a difficult year for everyone. I can't quite remember why. It's all such a blur. And by, by the way, not all of it was bad. Our son got married in October, and we've had the best year ever with our scholars this year. But instead of restarting in October, as we usually do, we've put off restarting until now. This first episode is the second part of a two-parter on postmodernism that Jack Vowell and I did last May. One word about Jack, by the way. He's just about to have a second baby with his lovely wife, Kate, and he is deeply involved with his Ph.D. work and teaching load for us and for the university. So we have had mercy on him and given him a break from podcasting for a bit. Don't worry, he'll be back, uh, and he'll once in a while come in and do a recording with us. But in the meantime, uh, I'll be hosting and bringing in some of my friends from all around to talk with me about the subjects that we address here at the Center. In upcoming episodes, I'll be talking with friends like Kyle Dillon and Ronnie Stevens and Doug Grutice and many others. So, we're glad to be back. We plan to upload a new episode every Friday morning, God willing. And, as always, we would love to hear from you. Drop us an email at director at centerws.com. Director at centerws.com. And give us your questions, your comments, your criticisms, and maybe even your Christian charity. And don't forget to tell us where you are when you listen. We will address your emails on the air, as they say. So, may the Lord bless you and the work of your hands. And now, the second part of Postmodernism, the Roots of Irrationality. So, Nietzsche definitely is a much more influential, because all like the true postmodern types are the ones who like get most influenced by him all imbibe this idea that, you know, there is no truth, reason is a product of social construction, your mind is a product of social construction, your identity is a product of social construction. You aren't even there, Hodges. Well, I mean, I guess physically you're there, but you, the you who is Hodges and thinking is an illusion of like intersecting social forces. That's right. And that's it. And and since the thing assessing or or uh, evaluating those those social forces and the you is itself the product of those social forces, then what can you put your finger on that's for sure? Nothing. And that's where you get to this idea that maybe reality should be perceived in an irrational fashion. I yes. Think. I think this is a doorway, too, for uh, Eastern mysticism to come in. Mm -hmm. I think in the 60s especially, we started seeing influx of of uh, Indian Hinduism and or, or modified Hinduism and uh, Buddhism and Taoism and so on, uh, Eastern thinking, what they might call monism, uh, the Hindus would call monism, uh, that all is one mm -hmm. and that the distinctions between things really are an illusion. Well, if you've been 
thinking for long enough in that in that mindset you just described that that uh, everything is for the most part a uh, a construct uh, an accidental construct based on all these forces that are much larger than we are that are impersonal and bringing things to be that your that yourself is is so so much more in flux than you thought uh, then when somebody comes along and says, well, yeah, the whole, the whole notion you have of the physical world with its distinctions between chair and table and, and, and rug and floor uh, and you um, is an illusion. It's all Maya, they would say. It's all illusory. Uh, th- that sounds rather attractive. Oh, that's kind of what I've been thinking, that maybe everything is in flux like that. Um, and 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 of course the, the 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 Eastern mindset then takes hold because in a sense we've we've given up um, a hold on this idea this very very what they would call Western idea that there is such a thing as transcendent truth either by under, understood by way of of revelation and reason together like we might call the pre-modern or by way of reason by it, by itself that you might call the modern or the rationalist that we've been talking about. Now we come to the point where we're saying, I doubt that that sort of thing really is going to get me where I need to go. This idea that the East brings into the mix might very well be the explanation. And really all I need to do is meditate in order to see the truth that everything is one and the distinctions I've been trying to to make between uh, right and wrong, left and right, black and white, all those things, maybe those things actually are illusions. Yeah, there is, and I can't go into the weeds on it in this podcast, but there is a kind of nothingness at the heart of things mm-hmm. in a postmodern, a purely postmodern view of things. And some, like, you know, what I mean by that is that, you know, all the sort of, so, so what is what's a thing reason does, all right? It, it distinguishes, it makes distinctions, it right. categorizes, it analyzes, defines, it, it defines, it, it makes categories and distinctions and sets up all these separations between things. That's right. You know, it's not necessarily hard separations all the time. You recognize that everything is ultimately integrated into some kind of whole, which is, you know, curious. Like, why is it that there's so many and yet oneness at the same time? It's almost mm-hmm. like the fundamental principle of existence needs to somehow have unity and yet diversity simultaneously what a concept i wish there was some sort of philosophical or theological system that had the idea that the ultimate principle was like one and many at the same time but anyway but that'll never happen that'll never happen but anyway in in, um in reason like makes all these distinctions and sets up all these categorizations right well if your reasoning is simply a product of social forces and therefore is arbitrary and therefore is an illusion because that means all your distinction making is an illusion Right. All right. Right. Uh, all your categorizations aren't really there. Well, what is there? Well, nothing is there. You know, no, nothing knowable or discernible. There's sort of a, there's all your sort of rational categorizations are like an empty structure. You know, mm-hmm. they're a structure, they're like a structure, almost like scaffolding surrounding a building, but there's no building mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. And so at the core, there's a sort of indefinable, indescribable, nothing well that's just sort of there wibbly wobbly tiny one yeah that type of thing right and so that that's an open door for a kind of revelry and absurdism kind of thing yeah yeah you know where people just sort of well if nothing means anything and anything can mean everything then let's just 
you know, let's not be serious about things. Let's just be everything. Nothing is sacred. Nothing matters. Let's just revel in our sort of uh, our emancipation from meaning. Right. Let's just yes. revel in that yes. in pure yes. absurdity. Yes. Um, or it can open you up to a kind of Eastern mysticism, Buddhist or Hinduist, especially like Buddhist, you know, like the, the nothingness at the heart of yeah, things. Yeah, the, the Zen Buddhist approach is not even oneness, is it? It's an emptiness of, it's a, it's a, ni a nihil, a, a zero at the center. Yeah. There's an emptiness of absence of all things. But I think one of the, one of the Western approaches to this, because it's not really, you know, you hear about, uh, you know, Hollywood stars embracing Hinduism or something. Buddhism especially, um, and what often, if you kind of scratch the surface, it's some sort of westernized hodgepodge of Buddhist ideas. Not actual, no self-respecting Buddhist would buy it, you know what right. I mean? Uh, but uh, that's what they, but they say they're, in, they're embracing this sort of, uh, this thing. It, it just emancipates them from uh, any kind of Western, reasonable, rational, and moral thought. Uh, and that's very attractive, I think, for, on, a, on the surface. But what they, but what they really are after is just playing now. And this is what I think. There's an element of play in uh, postmodernism yeah. that, where for a moment you think, "Hey, I'm I'm free of all those distinctions. I can just take things that don't go together at all and kind of." force them together and laugh about it, you know, yeah. enjoy, enjoy the randomness and the, and the emptiness of the lack of meaning, sort of t take the detritus of this world, all the little things and put them in, in some kind of order for myself and just enjoy it. I remember seeing a painting uh, uh, where there was a, a trout and a bust of Homer and they just put them together. And that was there was no explanation. There's no yeah. connection really between them. It's just there's a but there's a I don't know if statue is the right word, but some sort of physical art at the Brooks Museum here in mm -hmm. Memphis mm -hmm. in their like contemporary section. That's a purely postmodern piece of art. I mean, it's it's just a pastiche, uh, a statuary pastiche, I guess, mm -hmm. of different physical objects all sort of pasted together to make one big object. And one thing that's on there is this very Greco-Roman looking bust of someone's yes, head. Right. And it looks very, it's very nice. It's very classically done and all that. And right down below it is a cheese grater. That's right. That's right. Maybe a bicycle wheel and a, and a broom or something. I forget all the pieces that are in there, but all sorts of random pieces like that cheese yeah. grater. And it's like in there you see the entire sort of postmodern attitude of a, the sort of all distinctions we make between these things from high classical art to like a throwaway yes. Walmart item right. are illusionary and nonsensical. They really are just, you know, both equal. equal that's, it. that's the important thing, that they're equal in weight. Right. They're equal in meaning. They're equal in meaninglessness. Right. Because the shape doesn't make a shape of anything. Right. And, right. you know, there's not even like, it's not even a shape around anything. It's just sort of empty, mm. you know, just sort of an emptiness. Um, mm -hmm. so Marx tried to be a rational humanist, but his Marxism could be used as an irrational anti-humanism, even though Marx, like more traditional Marxists hate it when they, anything like that happens. Nietzsche is definitely granddaddy of like postmodern thought and a lot of postmodern thinkers. I mentioned Foucault earlier. Foucault considered Nietzsche his master mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but like yeah, Nietzschean, you know, all... Claims to reason, all claims to truth are illusory, and 
were to transcend the human, mm -hmm. right? So there's like the anti-rationalism, anti-humanism. Freud, the third horseman in the suspicion apocalypse, mm -hmm. is, I don't know, sometimes I feel like he's, it's simple on his end, but like deceptively simple because Freud, okay, Freud definitely would not have seen himself as an anti-rationalist. No. Okay? No. He has the Marx thing of like what he's doing is scientific. Right. All right? Good old Fraser, you know, like who's a Freudian. And he's like, you know, I'm a man of science, you know, which always bugged me because I'm like, what exactly are you observing in hypothesis? Oh, the human mind? Can you weigh the mind? I didn't think so. Anyway. And, and can you weigh the dreams? Yeah, can you weigh the dreams? The, that's what Freud was really big and on. You can't right? even have direct observation of the dreams. No. So how can you... Anyway, the point is, is Freud had the pretense to being scientific. Right. Right. So he definitely wouldn't consider himself anti-rationalist. Uh, and I don't think he considered himself anti-humanist either because, I mean, the whole... Okay. So from Freud, from Marx, we get Marxism. From Nietzsche, we get... Nietzsche, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and from Freud, we get psychoanalysis. Right. All right. And sort of the slapdash armchair version of this is that the assumption is there's your conscious life and your subconscious life. The conscious life is all the manifest content of your, con of your consciousness, basically. All right. Which means that this is all the parts of yourself and the thoughts and the actions that you allow into the open air. Okay, mm -hmm. you let people see it. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the subconscious is usually some kind of roiling ocean of all the latent content, stuff you kind of have repressed or kind That's of kept right. down for whatever, for whatever reason. You were told it was bad or you were shamed or just whatever. You're, you, know, you pushed all those things down. For a psychoanalyst, Neuroses and psychological problems are usually a result of something repressed in your subconscious ex kind of exploding out into your conscious in some way, like kind of mm -hmm. rupturing into it. little quirks or little neuroses that you have or like emotional issues that you don't, you don't understand why the presence of that one person just puts you into absolute like, you don't know why. Everywhere else you're perfectly tempered and calm, but just hearing that one word like puts you into twitches and stuff. You don't know why. Mm -hmm. Something like that. It was like, well, because there's something in the latent content of your subconscious that's trying to manifest itself. And of course, the place where like the subconscious tries to manifest itself is in dreams where mm -hmm. it uses all the stuff of your conscious life to try and construct some sort of symbolic representation of itself. So for the psychoanalyst, you're trying to study people's dreams to try and figure out what the heck is wrong with you, right. <laughs> basically. Right. Um, that's like the very slapdash version of it. I apologize to anyone out there who is like a real Freudian. Although I don't know who is a real Freudian anymore anyway. Mm. You know, Marx's scientific pretense was debunked because his economic ideas just don't Mm -hmm. They're not taken seriously anymore. Freud, he's taken seriously as this founder of psychoanalysis, and his kind of terms and ideas are still there, but a lot of his methodology and practices aren't. I don't think anybody does the, like, dream analysis thing anymore. Right. I don't think the Oedipus complex is really taken as he took it, mm -hmm. all right? Mm -hmm. So he's respected, but I don't know exactly who calls themselves a true Freudian anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been a lot of psychological schools since then. Yeah, so his presence is, you know, kind of disputed as well. But psychoanalysis comes <laughs> along, and the rationalist side of it is that it's scientific. Mm -hmm. See the quotation marks I'm making with my hands. <laughs> uh, the humanist side of it is it's trying to help people 
be more themselves, like yeah. be free. There's this assumption that whatever's going on in the subconscious, you have to, your conscious mind needs to recognize it, be able to name it, and then that's how you deal with it and can integrate it back into yourself. But there's this sense that the conscious mind is what matters. Right. All right. Like right. the subconscious is very important, but it's integrating it back into your conscious self that matters and right. making it all fit makes, together. That makes sense. So there's this sense of we're trying to emancipate people from their own selves. And the and the rationalist aspect of it is that they're trying to make sense of it, mm -hmm. right? Because it's making it's making sense of it in some kind of ordered way, whereas <laughs> what we're calling postmodernism is is the rejection of the notion that the rea that reality is knowable that way. I mean, it's the very system that we're rejecting right. in some ways. But yeah. So what are you saying is the seed of Freudianism? in postmodern. The seed of Freudianism is that by psychoanalysis setting up that you're bifurcated, that there's this conscious yes. self, but then there's a subconscious self, and this subconscious self has this strong effect on your conscious self. Mm -hmm. That's another way of saying, people notice in the 20th century, that's another way of saying that reason isn't this, it's not the transcendent, transcendental subject that's okay. outside and can observe from the God's eye view. No, you... Your reason, your conscious reason, is the product of forces that you don't understand, right? You're unconscious. So reason basically. itself is, is, okay, I was thinking you were going to say that reason was located in the conscious self and that understanding, bringing that unconscious self, subconscious self into the light of reason would be progress. It, it would. But the seed they get from like Freud's perspective, it would. But yeah. the seeds that get planted and get picked up is this idea that your reason is not king. What's king is your unconscious. I see. Your unconscious is the thing that directly influences your reason. The Frankfurt School picked this up. What makes the, I keep mentioning that. What makes the Frankfurt School unique is they did something that prior to them was thought to be impossible, and that is merging Marx and Freud. And the reason why Marx and Freud were thought to, you can't merge them together is because Marxism saw psychoanalysis as, as positing something outside of the material, material in right. some way. The unconscious right. is this thing that you is really difficult, that's kind of murky, and you can't really get at it. And it's something they can't allow for stuff like that. Okay, the idea that you could have an unconscious life that's actually influencing your reason, well, that could get in the way of the revolution. All right, that could get in the way of our scientific analysis of class conflict mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they didn't like it. But Frankfurt School comes along and weds the two together by saying that. The bourgeois order of capitalism is influencing and controlling people because they've so, and here's a fancy word for you, sublimated the sort of bourgeois way of thinking that it's an unconscious control on their lives. Unconscious. So unconscious control on yeah. their lives. Yeah. And so they don't even know they're being duped because Marxism already starts with the idea that social forces are shape producing you anyway. Right. So if you merge that together with who are you that's being shaped? Well, you have your conscious self, but also your unconscious self. Then that just follows that, well, they're also shaping your unconscious, and your unconscious has this outsized influence on your conscious life. Hmm. So the capitalist order kind of affects you in ways you don't, you're not even aware of. Like you're not kind of, which is what critical theory is for, is to like pierce through the veil, oh, right? I see. Pull out. Critical theory almost becomes a kind of psychoanalysis, like a cultural psychoanalysis. Uh -huh. We're trying to pierce through the manifest content and get to the bottom and see like what's really there. Yes, I see. So that makes sense. Again, Freud would have seen himself. I don't know if he called himself this, but he would have seen himself as a rational human, a rationalist humanist. 
because he saw himself as being scientific and that this was about the emancipation of people and bringing them their best life they can have by, you know, making their conscious life as healthy as it could be. It's very human positive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The way it turns is, again, this idea that your reason is not king in its own house. It is at the mercy of unconscious forces mm -hmm. that you don't have really any control over. Especially if you wed it, and this is where it all, like I said, this is where it all kind of gets complicated because everybody wants to say they're in this and not in this at the same time. You take those three threads of a, sort of a Marxist, uh, you are a product of here. You are a product of historical material forces. A Nietzschean, uh, all categories of truth and stuff are just social projections and constructions. Mm -hmm. And then a psychoanalytic, you are a bifurcated being with a conscious and unconscious life, and your unconscious life has an outsized influence on your conscious life. You put all those three things together, and what you get is the postmodern attitude that every claim to truth is false. My way of thinking about the world is influenced by stuff, and my perception of myself is influenced by stuff that's not me. And so my identity isn't even coherent because it's like made by a bunch of forces that aren't me. There is no me. Right. And there is right. no truth. If there is truth, it's not knowable because it's gone through this filter of society and through my own unconscious that's been influenced by society, and therefore it's just been garbled up so much that there's no way to know it's there. I see. Well, that that's making sense. The, the that the uh, huh, that the, that each of these three is somehow undermining the 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 wet the Western world's rationalistic sense of itself. Yes. Right. There's that there's that optimistic sort of rationalistic empiric uh, uh, enlightenment notion of the self that is being undermined by each of these three right. and the result of that that acid bath is postmodernism yeah and the loss of this the loss of this self and this loss of meaning yeah that's basically that's basically how to sum it up yeah. again like i said there are marxists who don't like the nietzschean stuff there's there's psychologists people who don't like constantly being hemmed in there sure um jacques lacan did a bunch of weird stuff that i'm not even going to begin to go into but all three of those threads, if you call anything postmodern, especially a postmodern like theoretical approach to literature or culture, somehow, some way they're drawing from those three streams, like Ghostbusters, they cross the streams, right? Mm -hmm. It's like they're drawing from bits and pieces from those three streams and sort of putting together this general mood of cynicism and pessimism mm -hmm. and irony. We've talked about that before. Irony. irony about things where you, you know, stand at a detached distance and act like you're... There's a weird sort of rationalism to the irrationalism. Right. Because the people who buy into this, everything is illusion, and all truth is whatever, social constructions, my unconscious is whatever, they all assume that that is the truth. That's the problem, isn't it? Right, and that they figured it out. We get stuck in the, in the debate about whether they're right about the, the, the annihilation of the self or the annihilation of the meaning, and we forget that the assertion that there's no meaning is itself a meaningful assertion. So, right. yeah, it's hard, it's hard to get outside of your reasoning. Yeah, it really is, because you can't get outside your own head. No, right? you can't. can't Can't be done, which is maybe one of those uh, limitations we were talking about that we, that we have to embrace and, and live within. Which leads us, Hodges, to the question of 
the post-postmodern or the <laughs> meta-modernist or whatever the heck is coming. Uh -huh. Well, be, before we get into that, let me, let me make a point that I was trying to make with the students the other day. Yeah. And that is that the key, it seems to me that there are three ways of looking here. There's this, for lack of a better term, if we're going to use modernism as a term, and I'm not convinced that that's the term we should use. But, okay, let's, what did you say? Rationalist, humanist, okay, yeah. like that. Let's use that as that sort of middle term. Yeah. There's a, there's a mindset that went before it that that reacts against that we might call pre-rationalist humanist. Uh, or maybe we call it um, theism, maybe. Sure. <laughs> because it's, it's this recognition that there's a mixture, that reality is actually visible and invisible. There are two parts. And that the invisible part can't be known apart from being revealed to us by the one who made it. So there's an assumption of a God, there's an assumption of a bit of revelation, and there's the assumption that, the, that reason is this gift we've been given to be able to unpack all that stuff. So all three of those things are involved in this pre-modern mindset. Well, then you get this sort of Cartesian and forward rationalist humanist mindset that seems to put a wedge between those two things, between reason and revelation, and leaves revelation in the realm of the subjective, of the realm of the at least less than tr trustworthy, and, and, and delights in and trusts in uh, reason. We get to the end of that period and we start seeing these seeds that you're talking about in Marx and Freud in particular, uh, where where uh, they are still thinking in the old rationalist humanist way, but there's but the the, the extent of their thinking is going to to be streams that you say cross with Nietzsche, and and then uh, create something something irrational. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's so there's a, there's a sort of pre rationalist humanist thing there's a rationalist humanist mindset and then there's this thing that's happening in the most recent say the last 40 years of the 20th century uh, that that makes rational claims that that reason isn't trustworthy right so there's that kind of irrationalness to it and they if they embrace the eastern mindset then they dismiss the the core of western thinking which is uh the law of non-contradiction Right. And this is how postmodernism is a kind of, it's still just modernism. It, by extension. Yeah. Because I said, it's an, it's, you could call it an irrationalist anti-humanism. And then I said, but it's really kind of a rationalist, irrationalist anti-humanism. Mm -hmm. Truly, Hodges, what postmodernism really is, is a rationalist, irrationalist, humanist anti-humanism. Because it uses reason to critique reason because they believe critique of reason is how we really emancipate people. Right. Right. To transcend all the sort of limiting ways reason has told us this is what the human is. Yes. So there's still this idea of like emancipating the... I mean, it's, it's back to Francis Schaeffer's Escape from Reason, right? This is how we find the real meaningful world, the real human world, is outside of reason. And whatever outside of there defines the human. It may define it in a way that's never we've never defined it before. And maybe even in past generations defined it as inhuman. But it's the same kind of idea. So there's, again, it's this weird bundle of like using reason to disprove rationality, yeah. using an anti-human sort of acid wash of the self to liberate you from any categories of what the self can be. So it's still about using your reason to emancipate yourself. It's just yeah. now you're emancipating yourself from reason itself. Right.
Right, right. Up until this point, we've used our reason to emancipate ourselves from all other aspects of our lives. Uh, but now we want to turn that that uh, criti- critical light on uh, on the self itself. And in doing so, we undermine the very self we're trying to emancipate. Yeah. So, but the, the point I wanted to make with the students the other day is I wanted to, to dr- drill down to the point of saying uh, the essential understanding of the world is going to have to be that there's a relationship between faith and reason, that the two of those things have to go together and that they can't be separated from each other. Um, if anybody's listened to our our series of Radius, Volume 1, uh, the Radius series, it's all about faith and reason and the place of the imagination in, in faith and reason. But that, I think, is so essential for our young people to hold on to. If they can grab a hold of that, that belief that, the, that revelation is essential and that it doesn't dismiss reason, and that reason is essential and it doesn't dismiss uh, revelation... Mm-hmm. Uh, then they can walk forward. They can move forward and make sense of things. But uh, if they if they release either of those two things, then uh, then you get madness. You get madness. The 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 the, the division that you get in, in the enlightenment between the faith and reason is a uh, a, a, a false dichotomy. And once you've made a false dichotomy like that, and you're forced to choose one or the other you lose, right? That's, that's the nature of false dichotomies. If you divide faith from reason and you, and you say, well, I'm going to embrace reason, well, then you get rationalism, and it leads, as it's done, to the problems that we see in the 20th century. Um, but if you, if you reject that, and some of our Christian friends have done this, I think, have said, well, if, if, if you're going to divide those two from each other, well, then I'm going to take faith, yeah. See, and I'm going to give up reason, frankly, because reason is associated in their minds with all this wacky stuff going on in the universities. Yeah. <laughs> what we, what passes for education now. I believe in God. You know, the old bumper sticker, I believe it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Right. As though there's no engagement with it on a kind of reasonable level. Or that God, or that God didn't say, "Love the Lord your God with all your mind, as exactly. Well as, your, as well exactly. as your heart and your strength and your soul." So how do you how do you get around that? If you're going to take faith as your your only guidance, uh, faith leads you to reasoning, and if you uh, take reason as your only guidance, it eventually leads you to irrationalism. Strangely enough. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted them to see was just that, uh, that faith and reason can't be separated from each other, that it actually requires faith in order to be able to reason. And the only way that we can grasp what we know to believe in is by way of the gift of reason. Yeah, like, so in reason and revelation, like I said, if they're isolated from each other, it just leads to a kind of madness. Yes. Um, you know, in the Christian tradition, revelation includes scripture and it includes the created order. That's right. Right? So the it's, heavens are telling the glory of God. So it's not just the Bible. It's Bible and creation. So that's, that's right. revelation as well. That's right. So revelation, you could say, is certain data that reason has to work with. Mm-hmm. And in a way, kind of sets the parameters of reason. Here's the stuff to think about. That's right. right? That's right. You can see how if you isolate those two things from each other, it could lead to different kind of madnesses. All right? And I don't mean mental illness. I'm talking about like genuine sort of, uh, I don't know, 
ordinary sense of just insanity. Like you just like you just do not see the world correctly. As it really is. As it really is. That's right. Right. That's right. If your revelation, if you have all this data but no way to reason about it, it's way too easy to fall into superstition or all kinds of silliness that the data doesn't actually reveal if you actually thought about it. Right. But if you have reason divorced from revelation, which by the way, remember includes not just scripture, it also created order. The created order. And you have reason in the void with no data to like hem it in or give it sort of like limitations to it, well then you could posit all kinds of wacko theories that the facts, if they don't fit into it, then you just twist the facts to fit a theory. Right. And both of those things are a kind of insanity, a kind of not seeing the world correctly. Right. And it's bringing those two things back together. And it is, I think, moving beyond the postmodern to whatever we're stepping into now, is it trying to bring those things back together somehow, not necessarily reason and revelation, but this idea of we have to posit something that's real and that's true and that's solid. You know, I just read an article, not an article, it was like a journal article, it was a real thick thing about the history of cultural theory uh, from the six, 1968 to 1998. Mm. And the person who was doing it was a very standard, you know, Marxist and like a late 20th century traditional Marxist who didn't like all this postmodern stuff. But they acknowledged that, you know, Marxist ideas, unfortunately, had a hand in, like, the proliferation of this stuff. And they said, what Marxism needs to do is we got to get back to the material world, man. Uh-huh. We have to posit the material world again. You know, we got to posit this thing that actually exists. There's a school of critical theory, of uh, literary theory, that came about in the last 10 years or so called eco-criticism. That posits nature as something important in the uh-huh. light of literature. And postmodern kind of literary theorists hate hate eco-criticism because it posits nature as a real thing. Uh-huh. I think <laughs> there was an eco-critic whose name I don't remember who said that the hole in the ozone layer is not a social construction, <laughs> right? which like infuriates uh-huh. some people. Uh-huh. Um, so what, what I told the kids as a way of like, I guess, wrapping it up is that what they're stepping into is sort of the after postmodernism, whether the name is, people are trying to find names. Quite frankly, I don't think we find names till after we've already gone through it. Right, right. Whatever it is, I said, as far as I can tell, and this is me kind of speculating, but it's based on some years of observation, that world is going to be marked by two things. Okay, I said two things, sincerity and fanaticism. All right. They're both kind of linked together, but one is more clearly more positive, and the other one's more negative. The sincerity thing is this idea that it's going to be okay and even cool-ish to believe in things again. Mm-hmm. You know, to assert mm-hmm. that things matter. That no, no, there is a truth, and there, that that that's going to start coming back. We've talked about this before, I think, when we talk about the new sincerity. The new sincerity on our podcast, right? So I, I won't rehash it. People can go back and listen to that podcast episode if they want to, but it's that idea. It's like, it's okay to believe in love again, or it's okay to believe that truth matters. You know, that it's okay to believe that again. If you're sincere about something, then that's actually not a mark against you, Uh right? It's actually maybe a mark for you, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a great opportunity there because people are going to be more willing to hear substantive remarks. And if there's any sort of postmodernist cynicism left, it's more of a cynicism towards insubstantial or ungrounded sincerity, mm. right? If your sincerity has substance behind it, well, then there's a bigger chance people will perk up and listen. Yeah. All right? So there's a great opportunity there. But the negative side of it is what I call fanaticism. 
all right? Which is to say that the reason people are like imbibing sincerity again and like real ideas again is because under sort of the postmodern umbrella for the last, I don't know, like for about 20 or 30 years of it or so and the, and the backwash of it we've had for the last 10 years or so, um, people are starved for meaning. Mm -hmm. They are starved, especially when postmodernism kind of vacates all meaning and then all that's left is just sort of your consumerist world where you go to job and you get money so you can like buy stuff and mm. it's just it's just empty like that emptiness only really feels like emptiness all of a sudden and so people are starved for meaning and just like you know people who are starved for food will probably eat anything people who are starved for meaning will believe anything mm -hmm. you know and it's no surprise to me that the phenomenon of like the lone shooter lone gunman lone terrorist thing uh -huh. you know rather than like whole surging armies these individuals Mostly young men, but there's been women. I think this, one of the San Bernardino uh, yes. shooters or people involved with it was a woman. Right. Uh, but these young people are even middle-aged people who can get isolated and, so to speak, radicalized, right, into anything from Islamic fundamentalist jihadism to, you know, alt-right ethno-nationalism to whatever the heck incel stuff is. Yeah. To just, I don't even know what the Las Vegas shooter was doing. Nobody knows yet. Nobody even knows to this day. Maybe just yeah. sort of a nothingness or who knows why. But it's no surprise to me that this phenomena, not just of like active shooters and stuff, but active shooters who have manifestos, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This idea that doesn't surprise me at all, mm -hmm. that people will be so starved for meaning and an identity that is informed by that meaning that they'll cling to anything. So, f and, and not just cling to it, but to take it on as the... It becomes it it eclipses everything, right? Yeah. They take on a particular thing. This is how fanaticism works. Right. You you latch onto something that you think has meaning, and then you allow it to interpret everything else around it, and you see the whole world through it. And yeah, uh, yeah that's how fanatic works. It's no surprise to me that not just the active shooter stuff, active shooters with manifestos stuff, but it's no surprise to me about the last ten years or so the rise of like activism on campuses like why are all these yeah. kids so yeah. obsessed with just screaming at people that they're like the great evil or something like, why yeah. like, what, yeah. i mean we you know in evangelical conservative christian culture we bemoan all that stuff and get really jazzed up about it but have you ever asked why yeah like what the he what the heck is so enthralling or enchanting or inspiring about that stuff and what's missing in the kids lives that they just just when you say take it hook, line, and sinker, I mean, they swallow the whole thing. Right. So much so that they can't afford to have a, a word said against it. Yeah. It would rock their entire world if they even questioned uh, or allowed someone near them to question the, uh, the embrace that they've, they've made of this fanaticism. After the postmodern acid bath, people, people are slowly, this is not like a switch was turned on necessarily, but slowly the transition is out of the acid bath, so to speak, out of that cynicism and sort of whatever, and back into a, we need to believe something. Yeah. But it's an open field, which means, you know, they could take, they could find the truth or they could take any snake oil salesman that comes along their path. Well, it's an interesting time to be alive, isn't it? Mm -hmm. To be able to speak into that world where there's such a need for meaning uh, now. Well, I guess we better wrap up. Um, do you have an, a recommendation? Do you have something? Uh, you yeah, I'm going to, I just read this book recently. I'm going to recommend uh, Michael Polanyi's The Tacit Dimension. Excellent. I, Excellent I read through that. It's a short book. 
how to put it this way, it's a, it's a thick, short book. Yeah. Like, if I put it that way. By short, I mean it's maybe 90 pages. Like, the version that you can find is like 90 pages. Mm-hmm. And it's in three sections. And he's a very, he's a thick writer because he's dealing with really heady ideas, but he's very, he's also at the same time pretty clear. Like, he paces out what he's doing. Michael Polanyi uh, was a scientist. He was like a physicist and a chemist, I think. I think he double majored. Don't quote me on that. I know he double majored in something, and one of them was chemistry. I don't know what the other one was. Mm-hmm. But he was a brilliant guy, um, and he was a Christian, mm-hmm. and he was worried about science. He doesn't put it exactly this way, but science getting detached from that sort of unity of reason and faith. And his whole idea of the tacit dimension is that all knowledge begins when you attend from somewhere to something you always start somewhere you, have to you start somewhere you exactly don't you don't right. start in a vacuum you have something that you are already trusting in and that trusting in is actually how you think in the first place how you can even begin to think so you have to have a place to start from if you're going to recommend tacit dimension let me recommend another polani book which is called personal knowledge Oof. and that's a wonderful book about this idea of well at least it starts out with this idea about objectivity what do we mean by objectivity and it gives you a whole new understanding of yeah. ob- the objective subjective dis- description. We recommend these things because for the future, you can't just be reactionary to these right. forces. You have to have, especially if you're stepping into this sincerity fanaticism matrix that I think is growing bigger. Uh-huh. That's good. Uh, you can't just simply react to things. You have to have your substantive alternative to them. Right. You have to have be able to say, here's why. Here was why Christ is different and better than all those other options out yeah. there. And you have to be able to articulate that substantively because that's what people are looking for is substance. Exactly right. Very good. All right. Okay. Uh, my voice is about shot, so we'll call it right there. Uh, this has been From the Center, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.